Well, good morning. So for those of you who were out at uh, Miller's Pond last week, you may remember that we looked at these five covenants. So when we read the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, at least for me, I get mixed up in the story. Who's where, what's happening, how does all this work? And looking at these five covenants can be helpful. They aren't really covenants about the people they're named after. What they are are promises that God made to these people, to all of us. So we looked at Noah. We had a little sign. Who had Noah? Oh, it was Ashton. A uh, cat sister was here in town was Noah. I think Alden was holding the Abraham sign. Was Lauren Moses? I'm trying to remember this. Dave was David. That really helped. That was the memory on that one. And then Honora was the new covenant, which is a passage in Jeremiah speaking of how Jesus fulfills all of these promises of God in deeper and richer ways than any of these guys could have ever known when God originally made the promise. So when we talk about Joseph, this is where we are in the story. Joseph's never heard of Moses. Moses doesn't exist yet, nor David. This new covenant idea is just way out of his mind. All he knows is that uh, there was this flood where God then made this promise. Hey, creation is good. Remember this in this covenant. And I won't destroy the whole world by water again. So Joseph knows that of who God is. And Joseph knows that his great-grandfather Abraham had a promise made to him that God would make descendants that will um, make a whole nation. So you got to think Joseph's got that in mind. Like, oh, I'm part of a part of a descendant making a nation. He knows that there's going to be some land. So this great land is going to come. And he knows that all of this is going to happen and be a blessing to people all over the earth. So this is, this is the limitation that Joseph knows of God's story. And that helps me when I'm involved looking at the Old Testament, thinking about what, what these guys do and don't know. So maybe that'll help you too. So let me give you a little more information about Joseph, and then I'll tell you what we're going to do today with our time. The other thing that I get mixed up in the Old Testament is who's married to who, and who had which kids, and how does all this work. So just a, a quick walkthrough. Abraham and Sarah had a son named Isaac. Abraham had some other kids too, and that's a whole remarkable story if you want to look up that. Isaac, by the way, is not the firstborn son. So you can watch in this story how God works within the social constructs of the time. He works within the culture, but he also pushes against it a little bit too. So through the line, here we have Abraham Abraham and Sarah have Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah have a son named Jacob. Also not the firstborn. He makes a big showing in the story, and this is where the line of Jesus will eventually come not the firstborn. Jacob, Jacob's a mess. He's, um, I'll leave you to read those stories. Read Genesis. It's remarkable. It's, it's, uh, that's my whole point is I'm going to tell you a few things about Joseph and hopefully you're like, oh, that was sort of neat. I'm just going to read the story for myself. Jacob ends up having multiple women that he has children with. They have 10 sons. He has some daughters too. They don't make a great showing in the literature, but I'm sure they did in life. And then he also has a wife named Rachel and she has two sons. So Jacob and Rachel have two sons. The one's name is Joseph. The other one is Benjamin. Rachel dies when she's giving birth to Benjamin. So um, for Jacob, he ends up thinking Joseph is the it guy. Again, Joseph is not the firstborn, which is usually where the power lies. Interestingly enough, um, Jacob, with these women... And his sons, this is where the tribes of Israel come. So historically, this is where we get um, the Israelites. It's from this particular family line, and this is where the descendants are going to come from. So keep that in mind. 
God's still working on his promise. He promised these descendants, so we're going to see that in the story. And it's going to be in some ways that fit where the culture is, and it's also going to push on it in some different ways. Um, one, one more thing, some notes about Joseph. First of all, what I said earlier, his faithfulness can only be based on the covenants that he knows. There's so much he doesn't know. I, I mean, so I, I can let him off the hook a little bit there. But he's really limited in what he knows of God. He knows that God is faithful. He knows God has made these promises. But these promises are not yet fulfilled, and he's waiting and looking for it along with the rest. It's also interesting that the story of Joseph takes up a full quarter of the book of Genesis. And it's really some interesting writing. Sometimes when I'm reading the Old Testament, I'm like, whew, man, I wish Louise Penny or somebody else had been involved in this. I'm having trouble following the storylines here. Um, But this particular section of Genesis, it is written in a riveting way. In fact, if you stop listening to me, you're like, I'm just going to pick up there in chapter 37. You're going to get as much as you can out of church today anyhow. So it's interesting that it's given that much real estate, this story. And then lastly, if I... Um, had really been thinking about the sermon before the weekend, uh, I would have named it God at Work, the Joseph Edition. So Teresa needs a title to get the uh, bulletins printed, and you have to come up with something. So thank you for reminding me of that politely every Thursday, Teresa. But if this is what we were really thinking about today, this is what I would call God at Work, the Joseph Edition, because when we read these stories of people in Scripture, this is not really about Joseph. This is not a story about Joseph. This is always, always, always a story about God keeping his covenant. And he uses people to do that. He uses us to do that. So we are the flow of the story. The story is not about Joseph. The story is about God and who God is. Okay? So now, here is, uh, here's our story for the God at work edition of Joseph. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 37. I debated, I really debated whether just to read it out loud to you, but then it got long. So you'll get, you'll get an abbreviated version of it. So if you like storytelling, here it goes. And if you want to read it for yourself, again, start in Genesis chapter 37. And here's how the story starts. Jacob has uh, a large family with multiple wives, many sons, and many daughters. And as time goes by, he has this favorite son named Joseph. This, by the way, is a mess. Everybody knows that's bad parenting. In fact, some people talk about growing up in families where that was so difficult. They would say, well, my my sibling was the favorite, or even I was the favorite, and so I know that that affected my dynamics. Having favorites is terrible. So the story already starts right off with, whew, this is going to be rough. And he's not just sort of the favorite. Jacob announced to everybody that he's his favorite by doing things like giving him fancy clothes, and he makes Joseph this beautiful coat, and he gives it to them. Meanwhile, all the other older brothers are out. They're tending sheep. They're away from the family. They're away from everybody. And Jacob says, Joseph, go check on your brothers. Take them some food. See how they're doing. Tell them I said hello. Great. So Joseph gets on his fancy coat, goes out the door, takes the long um, trek to find the brothers, gets to them, and they're like, oh, yeah, Joseph. <laughs> like, they just, can you imagine just seeing him come from the distance? They're working, working hard, and then here comes this lovely coat with his feet carrying him along. And not only that, Joseph, like, the nicest thing he can say, he doesn't know how to read the room. So he gets there, and he's like, guys, you won't believe it. I had this dream, and in the dream, you were all bowing down to me. Isn't that something? <laughs> and he gives them all the details. And then the brothers are like, that's it. We're going to end him. 
I mean, think about, think about the trauma and the violence that shows up in this family dynamic. They throw him into a pit. They're thinking about ending him when one of the brothers says, no, 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 let's just sell him into slavery. And a group of people come by, they arrange a price, and off their brother goes. And then to make this okay, they trick their dad by saying, oh, by the way, we found the coat, and it looks like Joseph's been killed. And the dad starts the grief process. I mean, this is, already this story is such a mess. And you've got to be one, or I do. Okay, so Abraham and descendants and blessing of the nations, how is this going to unfold? Where's this going to go? Well, as it turns out, Joseph gets um, sold in, and he makes the trek, and he ends up in Egypt, and this guy named Potiphar buys him. And Potiphar's a, a wealthy man, pretty powerful himself, and he gets to know Joseph, and he's like, this guy's sharp. I'm going to put him in charge of a lot of things. And in fact, Joseph is so good at it, like he is leadership 101. He's just great at managing everything that Potiphar doesn't even worry about his stuff anymore. He's like, ah, Joseph will take care of it. But then there's this dynamic with Potiphar's wife where she gets a kind of eye on Joseph and says, hmm, I'd like to spend some more time with you. And he says, nope, 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 nope. You're Potiphar's wife. I'm, I'm not, nope, this is not going to work. And through an exchange, um, he ends, she kind of grabs him, and he ends up like letting go of his coat. It wasn't the same coat, but it's interesting. The coat keeps showing up. He drops kind of his coat, and she has it in his hand, and she tells everybody, you see this? This is evidence that he was after me. And so she turns the story on him, and Potiphar's like, that's it, to jail with you. So Joseph's like, well, sold in slavery one minute, and here I am in jail another. So he's in prison. He's languishing. He's there. When all of a sudden, these other two guys show up. Pharaoh, who's the head of all of Egypt, the head, 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 head guy, has gotten upset with his cupbearer. That's the guy who tastes everything in the cup to make sure there's nothing poison in it. And the baker, he's not, he's not great with either one of them. And so they end up in jail, and they get to know Joseph a little bit when both of these guys have dreams. Like, we don't know what this dream means. And Joseph says, well, tell me about it. I know a good bit about dreams, which I think is a kind of confidence there. <laughs> like, he had that dream about everybody bowing down to him, and here he is with, slave in prison so that that's its own curiosity so they tell him the dream and he's like oh listen cupbearer good news you're going to get your job back everything's going to be great baker bad news you're going to come to your end and within three days these things had actually happened so joseph on the way out the doors tells the cupbearer hey remember telling everybody i got that right that's going to help me well the cupbearer forgets he gets busy doing his job and a couple of years go by when pharaoh has this dream and in this dream, terrible things happen, and he's super upset about it. And then he has a second dream, kind of like it. And he's like, what am I going to do? And the cupbearer says, well, I mean, I met this guy in prison. Um, he, he did pretty well in our dreams. Maybe you should talk to him. So he brings Joseph in. Joseph listens and says, oh, yeah. He says, what that means is there's getting ready to be seven years in Egypt of plenty. Like, you won't believe what the crops are going to produce. This is going to be remarkable and fantastic. Things are going to explode. It's going to be wonderful. But then we're going to have seven years of famine. People will starve. People will suffer. It's going to be terrible. So what you've got to do is you've got to take these next seven years and make them count. You've got to collect all the stuff. You've got to gather the grain. You've got to make sure that everybody's going to have enough when things go bad for the next seven years. So Pharaoh is like, well, that, I mean, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do that, um, and I'm going to put you in charge. And next thing you know, Joseph is again like the head of something. He's the number two guy in the whole nation. Meanwhile, meanwhile, um, back in Canaan where his family is, um, 
the seven years have passed, and now the famine has started. And Jacob, Joseph's dad, has heard, hey, you can go to Egypt and get some food. We can go buy it there. They're not out of it. So he sends, gets his sons together, and he sends them off, and he says, go do this. So they get there, and they have to go buy it from Joseph, because that's his job, so you report to him. Now, I wish I had pictures of this, but you can think about what some shepherds from uh, Canaan might be wearing, and then they show up in Egypt with this powerful Egyptian-dressed, Egyptian-haircut, Egyptian-well-fed guy is standing in front of them, and they come through the door, and Joseph's like, here they are. And they come in, and they bow down to him, and he's like, hmm, that dream. And he's watching them. And they don't recognize him at all. They have no idea that it's him. And of course, why would they? He wouldn't be on their radar. And they say, we came to buy some food. And he said, well, I think you're spies. Oh, come on, Joseph. So he sets them up. And he says, no, no, you're spies. You've got to prove that you're not spies. You're going in jail until you do. So they're in jail, and they're trying to figure out what's going to happen. How is this going to work? In fact, um, at one point, they do decide, uh, what, I, how, uh, and Joseph comes in. And he says, okay, I'll tell you what. You can go back to your land, but you've got to leave one of these boys. You can't have them all. You go back, you tell your father what happened, um, and you need to come back here and bring your younger brother. So they may bring Benjamin, his full brother. I want to see Benjamin. And they're like, whoa, that's going to be tough, um, but I guess that's what we'll do. So he takes one of their brothers, Simeon. He, he like ties him up, like putting him in handcuffs right in front of him, walks him out to prison, and leaves these guys to go home. On their way home, they're looking into their bags of grain, and they realize that all the money that they had paid for it was back in their bags. So it looks like they stole this stuff. So now they're like, what are we going to do? So they get home, and they tell Jacob, and they're like, this is bad. This is bad, Dad. You're not going to believe what this has happened. And Jacob's like, oh, I've lost two sons. Joseph is dead, which he's not, of course, but he feels that he is. And Simeon's gone, what are we going to do? And um, pretty much they just hang out and eat all of the grain they have, trying to figure out what to do. When that grain runs out, it's time to go back. And so Judah, one of the brothers, says, Dad, we've got to go back, and we've got to take Benjamin. And Dad, Jacob said, nope, 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 that's not going to work. In fact, That's in chapter 43, Genesis 43. That conversation is like watching, I don't know. It's almost, I I, I want a therapist to be there. Like it it is the dynamics and the painful things that are said to each other about how this is unfolding in their family life. It, whoo, it's rough. So they get it sorted. Finally, Jacob says, fine if I have to have more grief to save the lives of these people around me that are my family to get this food, then that's what we'll do. So off they go back, and they take Benjamin, and when they come in, Joseph sees Benjamin, and he's like, oh, you know, great, uh, here we are. And everybody there is like stammering about the silver. Uh, we, we had the silver in our bags. We So here's the old silver back, um, and also we, we have some more silver because we need to buy some stuff, and here's our brother, and can we have our other brother back, please? And so there's this whole thing, and then Joseph's like, well, yes. Uh, bring in the brother. And by the way, I'm going to throw you all a big party. And he does. He throws this big, giant party. And they're like, here's some, uh, here's some water to wash your feet. And I, I will take care. Our guys will take care of feeding your donkeys. Don't you worry. Just come in here and have this big thing. Can you imagine what this was like? The, like the emotional range and how Joseph just keeps dragging them through it over and over. 
Meanwhile, throughout this story, almost every time Joseph sees the brothers, he has to leave and go cry before he comes back and manipulates things a little bit more. So they get it all sorted. Um, oh, by the way, at this meal, Benjamin gets five times as much food as everybody else. I'm like, oh, you haven't really broken up the family dynamic here, Joseph. Like, come on. So this weird stuff keeps happening. And then everybody gets packed up to go home. And when they do, this time, same thing, load their bags up with silver, only there's a bonus. Take my precious silver cup, Joseph says, and put it in Benjamin's bag. So not only does it look like they stole double the silver, it looks like they've stolen something personal. So off they go, and then Joseph sends a servant after him, and the servant's like, yeah, I mean, you guys stole stuff, you're in big trouble now. I'm like, no, we didn't, no, we didn't, no, we didn't. Well, they open up the banks, and sure enough, there it is. And Benjamin's the one who is the most in trouble. So back they come to Joseph's house. Joseph sees them. He's like, okay. Um, lets them have it and says, well, you're all my slaves now. And they kind of negotiate. And he's like, okay, I'll just, take, I'll just take the one with the cup. Benjamin belongs to me. And then Judah, the other brother, pipes up and says, oh, no, please take me. He had promised his dad that in this really awkward conversation. When all of a sudden... They get it sorted out about what to do. And Joseph reveals himself. I will go ahead and read this passage. This is Genesis 45, the first 16 verses. So then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard all about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers weren't able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land and for the next five, there'll be plowing, there'll be no plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve you for a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So he's hinting back at this promise to Abraham. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, bit of a stretch, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph said. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You'll, you shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I'll provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it's really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt, about everything you've seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping, and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them, and afterward his brothers talked with him. And when the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Tell your brothers, do this, load your animals, return to the land of Canaan, and bring your father and your families back to me. I'll give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you can enjoy the fat of the land. And that is how the Israelites end up in Egypt. And you'll know that as the story unfolds, that eventually there will be so many of those Israelites there that God is going to have to come save them out of Egypt. And so they have come to this place to be saved. It was a place of refuge, like Ramona was talking about. But over time, those change and shift. And so the book of Genesis ends because Jacob ends up there in Egypt. Um, 
there's some chapters of his blessing his sons and making some uh, comments about what their future will be. And then Jacob dies. Joseph takes him back to Canaan like he had promised him he would to bury him among his ancestors and his uh, forefathers. Joseph comes back, where, by the way, he is now charging people for food and buying up all of Egypt for the sake of Pharaoh and even creates a 20% tax for people. So that's an interesting dynamic in the story. And then eventually Joseph himself dies. Although he dies, when he gets to the end of his life, some of that hotshot arrogance is, is tailored off a bit. Let me read the end of the passage to you. This is Exodus chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So even though they've been living together, I mean, there's still that, you don't quite get over some things. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of your servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. So Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of his children. And the children of his son Manasseh were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. And that's where the book of Exodus is going to open. Um, Next week, Sean is going to be talking about some uh, reflections from his time away, but then the following week, We'll get back to this story about what it means to have Joseph's bones in Egypt and where it's headed next. But the question is always, what are we doing reading this story? Um, I don't know that Joseph himself is always to be our guide. I mean, he he was a power monger. He complicated things. Um, he didn't always read the room. But there was a kind of faithfulness to him. There was a a resilience, a commitment to staying true to the promises of God and to believing those. But the more important thing is for us to remember that his story reminds us that once God has made a promise, once God is at work, there's not anything that we can do to thwart it. Sometimes we shift it, sometimes we move it. But God is always, always, always the force behind everything that's happening. And so here we are on a Sunday morning here on 3rd Street, But this is part of our story, too. This is where we come from. This is where we are are part of building whatever God's legacy is at this point in history. And we're doing it with what we know. Um, And it helps me to look back in time and to see that and to recognize that at some point in the future, somebody's got to look back on this time and know that we were doing our best to be ourselves also flawed and also faithful. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your story in scripture. Um, We thank you that you are present with all of us at all time. 
Help us to know how to be faithful in this culture and in this space and in our understanding of how you are at work. In Jesus' name, amen.